Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to study the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous topic, what he called the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. I'm sure you realize that in the study of any document, it's essential to have a clear idea of the basic terminology. One simply must understand those basic words which occur over and over again and which give meaning to the whole of the document. If, for example, you were to read a book about the states and you were unaware of the fact that the states is the common designation of the United States of America, you'd be terribly lost. Now, the Bible comes to us as a Middle Eastern book and a very Jewish book. All the canonical prophets, that's to say the prophets who inspired what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, came from the Israelite race. They were the ethnic descendants of Abraham. Now, I'm sure you realize that Jesus himself was a Jew to the core. He claimed to be the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, was a Jewish term, a Jewish title. It meant only one thing, namely to be king of Israel, the chosen, anointed, and appointed king of Israel. That's what it means to claim to be the Messiah. If one fails to understand that highly charged Jewish term, one is going to miss a great deal of the meaning and the depth of our biblical documents. Now, there's another principle at work in the study of any document. One needs to start at the beginning. Now, my impression is that many Bible readers tend to work only with the letters of Paul and very little with the sayings of Jesus. Has it occurred to you that God actually gave us three independent versions of the teachings of the historical Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and if you like, a fourth one, John, although John reports the work of Jesus from a slightly different angle. But Matthew and Mark and Luke provide three witnesses to the very same sayings and activities and miracles of Jesus. Now, there must be a good reason for that. Could it be that those books are the most precious, the most in need of repetition, and the most essential for our understanding of the Christian faith? It's a remarkable thing, but if you ask the average churchgoer what the gospel is, most likely he will not tell you that it has anything to do with the teaching of Jesus. Now, he will know, of course, that it has to do with the death of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection. But what about the fact that Jesus himself preached the gospel for three and a half years or so before he died? You see, the idea that Jesus came only to do three days' work to die and to be buried and to be raised again, is absolutely false to our New Testament documents. If you look at a text in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, you'll see that the writer there who's talking about salvation says that Jesus was the one who initiated the preaching of salvation. The gospel, that writer says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, the gospel began to be preached by the Lord Jesus himself and the continuation of the preaching was accomplished by those who heard Jesus, who were witnesses to the original and authentic teaching of the gospel by the Messiah himself. You see, Jesus was not just a person silent on a cross, vital and essential, of course, as the cross is. He was not just a person being miraculously resurrected from the dead by the Father. 
He himself was a rabbi. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, said Jesus, and you won't do the things that I say. You won't believe the teachings that I taught. You call me rabbi and master, he said in John 13, verse 13, and you do well. Do we think of Jesus as our rabbi? Do we take into account the fact that he was a teacher, an instructor, as much a gospel preacher himself as the apostles? Most people unconsciously think of the gospel as somehow beginning with Paul, as beginning after the resurrection of Jesus. Well, it's true that the death and resurrection of Jesus, of course, are central elements in the gospel, but they are not the whole gospel. That's why it's essential in the analysis of any set of documents to begin at the beginning. Now, to do that successfully, one really has to begin at the beginning of Genesis. But for the moment, let's look at the beginning of the gospel preaching ministry of Jesus himself. Why don't tracts offering the gospel of salvation take us to the initiation of the gospel preaching as Jesus gave it? We have a very clear summary of this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read there that Jesus came into Galilee announcing, heralding God's gospel. That's to say, a divinely authorized message, a statement from no less an absolute authority than the creator of heaven and earth himself, from God. God's gospel, that's what drove Jesus' mission. And what was the content of that message? Well, here it is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand, is approaching. Therefore, repent and believe in that good news. Now, notice, not just believe in being good, or that God is love, or that God is always in charge of everything, excellent as those concepts are. Something much more focused is involved in Jesus' initial message. His foundational statement, the very heart of the gospel, is to believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God. Well, you may be wondering what exactly would have been meant by the term kingdom of God. It's an amazing fact, but if you ask many churchgoers what they understand by the term kingdom of God, you will get a bewildering variety of answers. But how can there be any clarity about what Jesus demands with his first commandment to repent and believe in the kingdom unless we understand what it is we're being asked to believe in. It's impossible to believe in anything intelligently until you understand the concept being presented to you. Never forget that the battle for the minds of men lies always in the world of ideas, so said the famous evangelical preacher of this century, Francis Schaeffer. Now, he was right. Jesus came bearing a concept, a message. He did not initially say, Believe in the fact that I died for your sins and I'm going to rise again. Nothing of the sort. He said, believe in God's gospel, namely the gospel concerning the kingdom of God. I like to tell my students that as a British visiting teacher in America, I can easily be misunderstood. If I say in an American environment, I'm mad about my flat, I'll probably be understood to mean that I'm angry about my flat tire on the highway. If, however, I say exactly the same words in England, where English is spoken also, at least a different form of it, I'm mad about my flat means something like, 
I'm wildly excited about my new apartment. You see then the danger of misunderstanding words. In order to comprehend Jesus and to gain his mind and thereby his character and to resonate sympathetically with his whole teaching, we must do him the honor of investigating his language in its own first century Palestinian Jewish environment. Well, you may say that's an impossible task. How can the ordinary person have enough knowledge about Jewish affairs in the first century and Jesus' background to make sense of the teaching of Jesus? Well, actually, the task is not that difficult because the kingdom of God idea is really the center of the whole biblical revelation. In that 77% of our Bibles, what we rather unfortunately call the Old Testament, it really should be called the First Covenant, or perhaps the Hebrew Bible would be even better. In that 77% of our Bible, the kingdom of God idea runs as a golden thread from Genesis onwards. From the very start, God appointed man to be his vice-regent, his co-regent, if you like, in the Garden of Eden. As you know, the devil interrupted God's plan at this point, diverted the human race fatally by getting them to believe in the devil's lies rather than in the plain commandments of God himself. At that point, then, mankind sold out to the devil. Man elected the devil, so to speak, as his ruler. That's why the New Testament says plainly that Satan is now the God of the present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God and the ruler, the one calling the shot, so to speak, of society as it's organized in opposition to God, this side of the second coming. There's going to be, as I'm sure you know from the New Testament, a coming new age destined to supersede this present evil age. And you'll find that expression, present evil age, in Galatians 1, verse 4. And the fact that Satan is the god of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Now, God from the start had a restoration plan. He decided that he was going to put sound government and just order back on this earth. And God has been working consistently at that plan all of these millennia. Eventually, he sent his promised king, the promised king of the world. That's the Messiah, born some 2,000 years ago now, born to a virgin, becoming the son of God, by virginal conception in the womb of Mary, Luke 1, verse 35. Now, from the very moment that Gabriel announced the job description of the Messiah, saying that he was going to receive the throne of his father David and rule over the house of Israel forever, it was clear that Jesus was the one appointed to be Messiah. No wonder then that Jesus at the age of 12, when dialoguing with the theological experts of his day, announced that he had to be about his father's business, to be involved with his father's agenda, if you like. Now the question is, what was that agenda? If we can find out what drove Jesus' mission, we will find out automatically what ought to be driving our own mission. If you turn to Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, we find there Jesus making a remarkably interesting statement which opens up his whole mind and intention and gives us then a clue to the meaning and the purpose of the whole Christian faith. In Luke chapter 4 verse 43, Jesus said, I must 
and the divine compulsion that is, I must proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason why God commissioned me. Now you'll see clearly from that statement that Jesus did not think that he'd only come to die and to be raised. No, he'd come to initiate the gospel or good news preaching concerning his Father's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now the term kingdom of God, as it would have come over to his first century audiences, would have been entirely clear. The kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. Now we Gentiles have to be very careful that we don't invent our own idea of the kingdom of God. What we have to do is to go back to some key passages in the Hebrew Bible to see what was meant by the coming of the kingdom. What would it mean to announce the near approach or the future advent of the kingdom of God? Well, quite simply, it would mean a time coming when God would intervene finally, dramatically and decisively to change the affairs of humankind on this earth once and for all. I have to tell you that the expression kingdom of God does not just mean God's eternal sovereignty over the world. That's taken for granted in the Bible. It does not just mean God's sovereignty over your life, although that, of course, is essential. The term kingdom of God rather means explicitly and primarily and dominantly the great future event associated with the second coming of Jesus. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.